All right, if you want to grab a seat. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Genesis, we're going to start in Genesis 37 this morning, and so uh, you can get yourself open and situated to there, and as you do, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for today, God, for the chance to gather together as a church family, Lord, and just to worship you, God, to sing praises to you, to look at your word together, God, to glory and celebrate in the gospel, to be in fellowship with one another, God, to pray to you. Lord, I, I just pray that all that we do, God, we would do so with hearts of thankfulness and gratitude. God, that in all that we do here, Lord, we would seek to lift you high, God, to make much of the gospel, God, that we would glory in you and give you glory all at the same time. God, I pray that uh, a spirit of celebration and thanks, uh, a Christmas spirit would still be with us, Lord, as we are continually grateful for the birth of your son, God, the incarnation that you came to be with us, Lord, and that that same spirit of celebration would help us to look all the way to the cross, Lord, from manger to the cross, God, and to be grateful and thankful that not only did you come to be with us, but you also came to die on our behalf, Lord. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to set a little bit of context this morning, um, because what we're, what we're going to do is a little bit different than our norm here. And so if you're, if you're visiting with us or you're someone who maybe this isn't your normal church home, um, let me provide a little bit of, of context for what's going to happen this morning. The first piece is this. We're going to uh, work with Scripture a little bit differently this morning than uh, would be our normal practice. We, we believe very firmly that uh, the best way on Sunday mornings for us to approach Scripture is in an expository manner where we take a, sec- a large section of Scripture or a whole book of Scripture and we work through it verse by verse and we want to see the big picture and the whole context and how does it all fit together. And so we're in the middle of doing that. We're working through the book of Romans. We'll pick up next week in the middle of Romans 15 where we left off before our Christmas series and we'll continue uh, running forward that way. Today, like I said, we're going to start in Genesis 37, but we're going to do a little more jumping around than we normally do. Uh, and there's a reason for that, which I'll get to uh, in just a minute. The second piece of context information is that uh, we're in the middle of a transition. Um, If you're someone who's come and joined our church within the last couple of years, you may or may not be aware of that, or you might be aware of it to certain degrees. Um, In larger church settings like this one, where uh, an individual was a pastor for a long time, served faithfully for a long time, which we were blessed to have had in our uh, history here. Kim served for the first 30 years of LCF's existence, and more or less everything that exists here is the fruit of the Lord's work through his faithful ministry. And um, But when those transitions then shift to who is going to be like the second pastor in a place, those transitions experts say typically take five years in order to really kind of play themselves out and all the moving pieces associated with that. And so we're three years into that process. Um, there are literally books about these kinds of transitions now that 
kind of the mega church boom that took place in the 80s and the 90s, all those individuals are retiring. And so churches are rolling into these next scenarios. And there's a lot of research about how these transitions typically play themselves out. And for the most part, what, has, uh, what we've experienced here at LCF has been literally by the book. Not because we've tried to make it that way, but just because all the research and data is accurate. And the things that it says are going to happen, happen. And so um, we're right in the middle of that. And it was three years ago, actually, essentially this Sunday, the first Sunday of 2016, uh, where our transition really began. And Kim stepped out and had retired, and I stepped into this role. And on that Sunday morning, uh, I made a few promises to our congregation from up front. The first was that I would do my very best to love the Lord um, every single day and to encourage our congregation to do the same. The second promise that I made was that on every Sunday morning I would preach the gospel because I, I'm not really sure what, what would be more beneficial. And then the third promise that I made was that I would screw up at some point. I would make a decision that made people angry. I would, uh, because I'm young and I've never done this job before, I would do something that wasn't wise or that wasn't smart. And uh, it would be a learning experience for me and I would need to apologize. And that when those moments happened, I would own my mistake and I would make appropriate apologies for those. And over the last three years, I, um, I've strived to do those things and to do them well in front of our church and in, and in front of our staff. And in the process, some stuff has happened. And I want to, uh, this morning, to share some reflections that come out of that. And I want to do so by looking at the account of the life of Joseph. And so that's why we're going to be in Genesis 37. It is not my, um, I don't have anything against uh, churches or preachers that preach topically. It's just that I think that nobody wants to hear the thoughts of a 33-year-old on any topic. And so that's why we work in an expository manner. Um, And this morning will be no different. I want us to walk through some various portions of the life of Joseph, and I want to draw some reflections out of things that I've experienced and seen and heard and um, kind of watched play out over the last couple of years, but specifically over the last 18 months or so. The third piece of context is this, and that's that in September, late September and early October, I took uh, like five weeks of time away. Uh, this congregation and our leadership team and staff was gracious enough to grant that for me. And on the Sunday before I stepped away, um, I opened. I was open and, and yet guarded about why it is that I was going to be taking some time. And I was open in the fact that I wanted to be honest with our congregation that I, w- I was not in a good place mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and that I needed to seek some help in order to get into a better place. But I was guarded at the same time because I didn't really have great words to put to exactly uh, why I was in that place. And so I couldn't go super far down the road there um, because I needed some time in order to really think through it and process that. And... Um, I want to take some time this morning and be transparent and vulnerable about how it is that I arrived in that spot. There will be a season and a time down the road to share some of what uh, Melody and I learned over the course of that time. We spent some time at a place in Colorado that works with pastors who are in this kind of position and find themselves in the position that I found myself in. 
Um, it's not time yet to do that side of things, but I do want to share more with you this morning of how I landed in the place that I was in. And I want to do so for a couple of reasons. The first is that we're a family, and that means that we can talk about hard stuff. In fact, it means that we need to talk about hard stuff. Our staff longs for uh, this congregation to be open and vulnerable and transparent with one another, to be that way in our small groups, to be that way in our friendships and relationships with one another. Uh, And I'm a firm believer that anything that you want to have happen in a group or a team or an organization is a product of what's modeled and valued from the top. And so if transparency and vulnerability and honesty are going to be something that we want to be core to who we are here at LCF, that means it has to start with me. And um, this is an opportunity for me to do a little bit of that this morning. Another reason that I want to uh, go this route today uh, is that I want to be able to offer some encouragement. I'm not certainly not up here sharing what I'm going to share this morning because I, I want there to be some sort of like pity party for me or something like that. The Lord's been incredibly gracious to me, and I hope that comes through over the course of the next half an hour or so. But I also know that there are other people who find themselves in a similar place right now, or they have loved ones who are in a similar place right now, or I'm fairly certain that there are a large number of people in our congregation who will find themselves in this kind of place in the future, or will find a loved one in this kind of place in the future. And there are some truths that I want to share today, um, and I want to draw them out of Scripture. I want to draw them from the gospel, because I think that they can be an encouragement for, for individuals in the future. And so um, there aren't going to be any slides this morning. Um, I was wrestling and and kind of struggling with exactly how this was going to go this morning uh, right up until last night. And so uh, if you're a note taker, I didn't pre-make any notes for you. So you just have to take your own notes. Um, So I want to start in Genesis 37 with the first two verses. And as we work through Joseph's account in his life here, um, I want to draw some parallels and I want to draw some reflections. And so the first one comes out of the first two verses here. Uh, Genesis 37 says this, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. He's on the younger end of the family. And I love the fact that this begins by simply telling us Joseph's age. And the reason that I love that is because oftentimes when we read scripture and we've got 6,000 years worth of time to look backwards or so. And what we see when we look at scripture most often is that we think in terms of final products. We think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, And these amazing biblical figures, Paul, any of the disciples, and we see final products and we think backwards and we think their whole story and everything that they did and that they experienced. And we kind of lose sight of a a key truth. And it's the first reflection I want to make this morning. And that's that everyone is a process, not a final product. We know this about ourselves We know that we're this work in progress, that there's a process playing out inside of us and the Lord is sanctifying us and molding us into his image and we know these things to be true. And when our brokenness and our sin kind of rears its ugly head, we want everyone around us to extend to us the kind of grace that the Lord extends to us in the midst of our process. 
But then what often happens is that when we look outward at other people and their sin and their brokenness comes crashing into us in a way that we don't enjoy, we want our tendencies to be a little bit stingy with the grace that we would want given to us. And so while we want all the grace that's available to be lavished upon us because we know we're a process, we want everyone else to be a little bit closer to final product so that their sin and their brokenness doesn't bump into us. And so our tendency is to be a little bit stingy with our grace toward other individuals. Another truth here that happens along this idea is that typically um, we, we exist in these relationships, particularly in churches of larger size, where the person up front we assume is a final product. We assume that the person that gets up week in and week out and teaches from God's word and leads the congregation and preaches about the gospel, we assume that person is, at the very least, much closer to final product than we are. I know that's the case because for most of my life, I sat in the other spot and I didn't stand up here. And I assumed that the person that got up there was more final product material than I was sitting in the seats. And then I got up here and I realized, hold on, I'm pretty much the same person I was when I was sitting down there. It's just that now I'm up here. But what's also unfortunate is that in larger church type settings, Uh, Not only do we have a tendency to think from the seats that the person up front is closer to final product, unfortunately, the person up front tends to project something closer to a final product. And the reason is because I can tell you exactly what I want to tell you from my life. I can give you all the, the details and illustrations and whatnot, and you feel like you know me because I share about my life and I share about Melody and I and our marriage and those kinds of things, but I'm giving you exactly as much as I want to and I'm stopping at that point. I can share all the details that I want. I can edit out parts of the story that aren't particularly flattering, whatever the case might be. And so while you are thinking that I'm closer to a final product, I'm also uh, sometimes intentionally, if I'm being totally honest, projecting something that's closer to a final product. And so this distance starts to develop between us. And the larger the church is, the greater the distance. Because a larger and larger number of people feel like they know Tim... And Tim is working harder and harder to project a particular image. And so what happens, and we see this cycle play itself out all across the American church right now, is that in large places where this distance starts to develop, it becomes easier and easier to a degree for the person up front to cultivate exactly the image that they want in the people that are around them. And so when sin raises itself, you just increase the distance a little bit further so no one will see the sin. When brokenness starts to crop up, you push the wall out a little bit further, you share a little bit less, you let fewer people actually get close to you until the the sin and the brokenness and the devastation is so great and it's so large that you can no longer hide it. And then you have these large public falling outs, these large public failings, moral failures for individuals who are in these positions because they could hide it no longer. They were a work in progress all along. And what maybe started as a small sin issue that 
if we were all just open about things, wouldn't have been a big deal, became hidden and covered up and it became bigger and bigger and bigger until it was no longer manageable. And now you've got a situation where a person's got to be removed from ministry. It's maybe destroyed their family. It ends up wrecking a church. It harms the, the uh, witness to the gospel out in the watching world and all of that. And we see that play itself out over and over and over again. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep. The reason I think it's really wonderful that this this account starts this way is because what immediately follows is not a good look for Joseph. What comes right after this, the first account we get from the life of Joseph is exactly what you would expect a 17-year-old to do. Now, when we think of Joseph, we think end of the road Joseph. We think Genesis chapter 50, Joseph. But he starts in Genesis 37. If you were to begin writing a story about my life right now, you would say, Tim lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of liberty. These are the family records of Rod. That's my dad. (laughs) At 33 years of age, Tim tended sheep. He pastored. And from this vantage point right now, I can tell you that up to this point, some of the stuff that comes after that line would not be a good look for me. But I've been able to kind of cultivate the image, if you will. I don't want, I don't want that wall anymore, though. So part of what I want to do today is, is tear that down. I'm, I'm a work in progress. There are absolute, hard and fast, biblical standards for individuals who put themselves, uh, who are called into ministry and put themselves into leadership positions in the church. We should not shy away from those. We should uphold those. People in ministry ought to be held to that high standard. And yet, at the same time, that doesn't mean that people in ministry are final products. Their work's in, process, in progress. And so was Joseph. We won't be final products, any of us, myself, or anyone here, or anyone else in the world, until we stand before the Lord because we've either died or He has returned. And at our final moment of judgment, we are declared innocent, we're covered by the blood of Christ, and we are glorified. And then Him in all of His glory, Jesus Christ, will see Him, and He will get to see us, and we'll see each other in all of our final glory, but it's not coming until that moment. You will be a work in progress right up until the moment that you die and then get transferred into glory. So what happens next is that Joseph has a couple of dreams. And in the dreams, both of them, the message is that at a certain point, his brothers are going to bow down to him. Now, Joseph, I said, is uh, one of the younger brothers in the family. And verse 8 of Genesis 37 sums it up well. Joseph made what decision a 17-year-old would make, and rather than like Mary in the Christmas story, pondering these things in his heart and and treasuring them, he instead goes and trumpets them to his brothers. And in Genesis 37 verse 8, they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Joseph gets this dream and it's from the Lord and it's factual things. It's what's going to happen. And yet his own sin causes him to interact with the dream in a not so great way. His own pride wells up and he says, look, brothers, you're going to bow down to me. So here I am, 17-year-old Joseph, and we're out here in this field tending the sheep. And this is the moment I expect you to get on your knees and praise me because I'm wonderful and great. And God told me this was going to happen in his dream. And his brother said, uh, we'll kill you. That's literally what comes next in the story. 
Joseph is sent by his father out to the field where his brothers are. He's already shared the dream. It's made his brothers angry. It's made his father angry. And as he's approaching his brothers out in the field, they cook up this idea to kill him. And somewhere along the line, there's a decision made that maybe we don't actually need to kill him. Instead, let's throw him in this pit over here. It's literally a well, like a dried up cistern. Let's throw him in this pit over here and then we'll take the coat that, is, that our dad gave to him back to his dad. We'll put some animal blood on it and we'll say, <clears throat> Joseph's dead. Well, that didn't end up good enough either. <clears throat> and one of the brothers says, okay, well, instead of just putting him in the pit and then not knowing what happens, let's sell him to these traders. Your text might say they're Midianite or Ishmaelite traders. And they can take him, and we'll still take the coat back to dad, and we'll put the animal blood on it, and we'll say that Joseph is dead, but at least we won't have to pretend like we don't know what's happening. We'll just know he's gone, and we'll never have to face it again. Sometimes, I think, within Christian circles, we feel like it's not permissible to have desires and to have dreams, even desires and dreams that the Lord hardwires into us, that he has made you in such a way to desire and to dream certain things. And he's called you to certain stuff and you're certain of it, but we feel like within the church, like we're supposed to stomp those down or something like that because we're not allowed to have wants and we're not allowed to have yearnings inside of us. That's not the case. God wants to fan those dreams. He wants to fan those desires into a flame that gets used for his glory and for his purposes and to spread the gospel. And yet sometimes we get these dreams and these desires that are conjured up by our own sin and they need to die. That dream, that desire, that yearning is based out of our own pride. It's based out of our own sin and it needs to go. And so sometimes those dreams die because of factors entirely outside of our control. Sometimes they die because, well, that thing was entirely of me and it needed to die. Sometimes there's a dream or a desire that exists within us and we feel as though it's died, but that's because the timetable that God had in mind is different than the one that we had in mind. And so it's not so much the death of a dream or a desire, but it's a detour. And that can feel grievous and painful, but ultimately it's gracious. And what happens to Joseph here is that a dream that the Lord gives him says, this is what's going to happen. It takes a wild detour. When, Jacob, or when Joseph is thrown into this pit. Flip over to Genesis 39. Joseph's put down into the pit. He's picked up by these, he's sold to these traders. They take him to Egypt. They sell him into slavery. The brothers go home. They tell Jacob, the father, that Joseph is dead and here's his coat with some blood on it to prove it. And this is what Genesis 39 verse two says. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the kind of statement that a person doesn't make as they're in the pit and sold into slavery and become a servant in someone else's house in a country that's not their own. That's the kind of statement a person makes upon reflection of such events. But there's the Lord, we're told, present with Joseph as all of this is happening. And what I think the rest of this story shows us is that the Lord is present with Joseph because he wants to do something internal, in Joseph, and he wants to do something eternal 
through Joseph. This is where I want to start to interject a little bit of my own story over the last year plus, year and a half. Um, no one who, who pastors uh, a church in this kind of role shows up uh, on Sunday mornings to give a sermon or shows up in the office on Monday morning and thinks to themselves, how can I run a couple hundred people out of this place? But that's what has been the case over the last 18 months or so. Um, you may or may not be aware that over the last year, a little over a year, um, for various reasons, a fairly significant portion of our congregation has made a decision to go into worship elsewhere. And that's painful. It's painful for our church staff. It's painful for our leadership. It's painful for me personally. Part of the reason that's painful, and this is just being the transparent thing here, is for pride. It just, it just hurts your pride to have someone say, I'd rather be somewhere else. Another reason that that's painful is because our staff and our leadership team and me personally, we just really love everyone who's here. I might not know everything about you. I probably know exactly which service you attend and exactly where you sit because you're a creature of habit. But otherwise, we may not know each other all that well. You might know me because I share about you, but I might not know all the details of your life, but it doesn't stop me from really loving the church family here. And so you want to do, you want to continue to walk with those people. And when people choose to leave, that's painful and it hurts. And over the course of three years here in the middle of this transition, there have been a number of decisions that we've made as a staff and as a leadership team that we knew were difficult, that we knew some people weren't going to love and that was going to create some friction. And we've, uh, yet at the same time, we've made those decisions because we were confident they were the right things to do. And so the weight of those um, became increasingly challenging for me. And then the folks leaving became increasingly challenging for me. And I've talked about having this heart condition that's gotten uh, progressively worse, and that was becoming increasingly challenging for me. And in July of this year, my wife was set to go on a trip with her two sisters. They were all going to meet in L.A. and spend five or six days together. And as I'm descending further and further into the pit here, Melody and I had to have a conversation together that neither of us ever thought we'd have to have, that you don't ever picture having with your spouse, which is Melody asking me, Tim, are you safe if I leave? If I go on this trip, physically, are you safe? So we talked back and forth about that for like a week before she left, and we, we made the decision that, yeah, I think, you know, I think I would be okay. And so she's gone, and as that trip starts to, uh, gets closer and closer to, a, to its arrival, I start having these panic attacks. I can't get myself to go out in public without having these crushing sort of anxiety attacks, on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings, I, I mean, literally right up to like the few minutes before stepping up here to teach, I'm, I'm having huge panic attacks. I'm in my office, my pulse is racing, I'm sweating profusely. I'm like, I'm in tears because I think I'm going to stand up there today 
and whatever I say or whatever happens over the course of our service, I know what the outcome's gonna be. Someone's gonna send me an email on Monday. They're gonna say they wanna set up a time to come and meet and they're gonna talk to me about the fact that they're choosing to go and worship somewhere else. And I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can go out in public because I don't know who I'm gonna see and what I'm gonna say. And it was crushing for me. So Melody leaves on her trip and we had just bought a treadmill because theoretically, if I ran on the treadmill inside where it was cooler, I wouldn't have heart problems. Our small group had a get-together plan for either that Friday or Saturday night. And uh, right before it was time to go, I, I had a panic attack. And I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to go. I'm just going to go downstairs and I'm going to run. Well, I got on the treadmill um, and I had what even still to date is the worst heart episode that I've had up to this point. And so um, I just kind of smashed the stop button on the treadmill, and uh, I'm, I'm there on the floor. I'm laying on the floor in our basement, and I'm just I'm bawling because I can't really put words to it, but something inside of me has died. And for the first time in my life, and I, I genuinely hope the only time in my life, I thought to myself, and I think I want to be dead too. And I'm laying there on the floor. And in that moment, I could not make a Genesis 39 verse 2 statement that, you know, I felt like the Lord was really present. No, I, I felt like I was completely alone at the bottom of the pit. And something had died. And I, I'm trying to like put my finger on what is it, Tim? You know, and I, again, I wish I could stand up here and say that what died, what was dying inside of me, you know, was some like real kind of holy and righteous dream of like a certain kind of health within our church body or um, seeing the Lord do fill in the blank through our church because I felt like he had told me that or whatever the case might be. No, really what was dying uh, inside of me was that uh, I had kind of a sick and, and twisted dream that needed to go. Um, which I'll get to here in a minute, but let me go on with Joseph. Joseph ends up at Potiphar's house and he spends some time there as a servant and he's really good at what he does, but he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. That's Genesis 39, the first half of the chapter. And uh, he's falsely accused of trying to force himself on Potiphar's wife. And so Genesis 39, 19 says this, when the master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and had him, that's Joseph, thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But then look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. So the Lord's still present. There's something internal that the Lord wants to do. There's something eternal that the Lord wants to do. But Joseph has gone from pit to Potiphar's house, to prison. And while he's in prison, things get even worse. Because at the end of verse, or at the end of chapter 23, Joseph has interpreted some dreams for people and it's, he's doing these amazing things and all he wants is to be remembered. All he wants is for the cupbearer to get before Pharaoh and say, there's this man in the prison named Joseph and you should go and see him. And yet the cupbearer arrives at his moment before Pharaoh, and we're told in Genesis 40, or verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Few things are more damaging to the human psyche than aloneness, and I don't mean solitude. Solitude's a healthy thing. We 
take solitude on purpose because it's good for our soul. Jesus took solitude all the time. Aloneness is something that's forced upon us. And feeling like you've been intentionally forgotten amplifies the pain of whatever we're experiencing. And yet sometimes in our own pit and in our own pain and in our own darkness, we create our own prison of being forgotten because we're unwilling to talk. And this is exactly what I did. I felt like, because I was supposed to be the finished product, that I couldn't be open about what I was experiencing emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And so I didn't tell, you know, I wasn't telling the congregation. I showed up on Sundays. I tried to slap on a happy face when I was over here. I preached to the best of my ability on any given day. And then I went home and uh, tried to just cope with things on my own. And I didn't, I didn't tell our staff, I didn't tell our leadership team, I didn't tell the guys closest to me in my small group and my friends who've been friends for years. And so I forced this prison of aloneness on myself. It is sufficiently comforting, like in Genesis 39.2 or Genesis 39.21, to know that the Lord is present with us. But sometimes in our pit, we don't even know that. So it would be nice to just know that there's another human being present, that there's just someone there in the pain. And yet sometimes by our own silence, we make it impossible for that to happen. We add to our own pain by creating isolation. And so that's where I was. And Melody and I start having conversations back and forth. What are we going to do about this? She came back from California. How are we, how are we going forward? This is not, you're not in a healthy place. There's real fear now that Uh, I might end up hurting myself. And so what are we going to do? We have to start getting this into the light. We need to force some light upon this situation. And so we decided that we would tell the leadership team and tell the staff and um, Melody set up like, I couldn't even set up breakfasts or lunch with some of my closest friends. Melody set them up for me. And she said, when you get there, you've got to be honest. You have to tell people what's going on. You can't be alone in this um, forever. And so that's what we did. And we tried to start opening up this prison of solitude and aloneness, um, not solitude, but aloneness that I was in. I've heard a lot of people say uh, over the course of my life, it's a common refrain that you hear that once I hit rock bottom, it became apparent to me that the only person there was the Lord. And that's true. And I've, I've said that myself, I think. But having made it to rock bottom there on my bedroom or on my basement floor, um, I realize that there are actually two people present there. The Lord is present. And so are you or so was I. And so there's this great hope because the Lord is there and you know that he's present and he's comforting and he's loving and he's gracious and he's got something that he wants to do. And yet there's the horror that exists because... I got to take a long, hard look at myself in this. What is it that's going on that's got me in this position? What is it that's happening internally that's landed me in this spot? Your text might say in Genesis 39.2 and Genesis 39.21 that the Lord remembered Joseph. That phrase remembered that's a refrain that runs throughout the old testament when noah and his family are in the ship during the flood we're told that god remembered noah and his family there are multiple times in the life of abraham where we're told that god remembered abraham here we have it with joseph 
At the beginning of Exodus, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to the Lord, we're told that the Lord heard them and remembered them. David prays all throughout Psalms that the Lord would remember him. Jeremiah, when he's struggling as a prophet, cries out to the Lord and we're told that the Lord remembered him. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of the thieves next to him as he's dying says what? Remember me. Remember me when you come into paradise. It's not possible for the Lord to forget. He's sovereign and he's omniscient. He sees all, he knows all, he cannot forget. What that phrase means is that the Lord decided to act. That God had made a promise with one of these individuals or he's made a promise to humanity in general. And in that moment, God remembers in that it's time to act. He acts on that promise on behalf of that individual and on behalf of his will. And so there I am in July and August and it's, awful and the Lord is present and he wants to do something internally, he wants to do something eternal. And I remember getting somewhere into August and looking at Melody and saying, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to write a letter to the leadership team. I'm going to go into work tomorrow and I'm going to quit. I can't, like, I can't do this anymore. I'll stick around as long as it takes for LCF to find another pastor or whatever the case might be, but I need out of this. I cannot do it any longer. I feel like it's literally killing me. And in a way that only uh, a wife can do to a man in this like uh, beautifully loving and yet brutal way, Melody looked at me and she said, we can do that, but you'll still be you. You can go and you can be a teacher or you could, you know, decide you're going to sell insurance or you could go back to school and get a different degree in something and you'll still be you. There will still be something inside of you that's gotten you into this place that will need to be dealt with, and it'll manifest itself in different ways, and maybe you can run from the current position that you're in. And she said, I will, I will go with you to that place, but this won't be over. And she was absolutely right. That was the horror that existed inside of me. And so this is where I want to be totally like honest and transparent about the brokenness that exists here. What was dying inside of me was not that people were leaving the church, was not that I was having a health problem and I thought I was going to be this like bastion of great health for my entire life or whatever the case might be. What was dying inside of me was that I had this deep, deep desire to be impressive. That stepping into this position and doing this job, I just thought people would think, man, he's good at that that I would get up on Sunday mornings and I would lead our, our, lead our staff and lead our congregation and everything would go so great and people would be drawn to it and we would grow, not necessarily because the Lord was doing something so magnificent within our, our midst, but because I was just this force of greatness that caused us to grow. And as people started to leave, it became clear that I must not be as impressive as I wanted to be. And I would have three or four meetings with families in a week who were saying, hey, we're headed somewhere else. We're going to go to this other church. And it was, it was absolutely just crushing me inside. And that desire to be impressive is sinful. And it's broken. And it had to be put to death. And the way that the Lord chose to do that was to throw me in the pit. 
Because when you get down into the pit and you see the horror of yourself and you see the hope of the Lord, you realize that the most gracious thing that God can do to you at any point in your life is give you the opportunity to see him clearly and to cherish him deeply. And it doesn't matter if you're on the highest mountain peak of your life or if you're in the deepest pit, the most gracious thing he can do is provide for you an opportunity to see him clearly and to cherish him deeply. There's a prayer that David uh, offers and it's Psalm 43. And in the middle of the prayer, David gives, he gives like an address to the Lord. Like sometimes David will say, my God, the Lord most high. And he'll like tag some sort of expression onto the end of his, his addressing God. And he says, to my God, and then he says this, my greatest joy. I remember reading that and it was like I got punched in the stomach because my greatest joy, if I'm being totally honest, was that people would like think that I was really good on Sunday morning. That the sermon that I gave or the decision that we made was just this wonderful thing. And so I'm tossed down into the pit and something internal has to happen inside of me. Something has to die and the desire to be impressive had to go or else I would never find my greatest joy in the Lord. There's a prayer I read this morning. Um, It comes from a book called The Valley of Vision. In the middle of the prayer, it says, God, you are preparing joy for me and me for joy. In order to truly experience joy, I needed the pit, I needed the prison, because I needed something to die. The most gracious thing God could do at that point was toss me down in the pit where it was just the horror of my own sin and the greatness of his glory, and I had to stare at both of them long enough to decide that his glory and his grace was better than this thing on this side, and it needed to die. There are two huge moments that take place in this story of Joseph's life. They take place within Joseph, but also within one of his older brothers, Judah. In Genesis 37, it's Judah who decides, maybe we shouldn't kill Joseph, let's just throw him in the pit. Maybe we shouldn't just leave him in the pit, let's sell him into slavery. Something internal happens within Judah over the next few years because Joseph rises up to be the second most powerful person in Egypt and he's helping see Egypt through this famine and Jacob's whole family starts to uh, need food. So they make this long trek over to Egypt. And 10 of the brothers are there. Joseph is number 11 and Benjamin stays home. These 10 brothers arrive at Joseph who's overseeing the food in all of Egypt and they bow down to the ground before him. There's Joseph's moment. There's the dream come true. His 10 brothers bowed down before him just like he saw in his dream. And what does Joseph do? He doesn't stand up from his seat and say, told you, I told you that this moment was coming. You dirtbags threw me into that pit and now here you are bowing down and I'm the one with the means to either feed you or let you starve. Look at my moment of glory. You know what he does instead? He weeps. He sees his brothers bowing down before him and he's got to leave the room because he's so overcome with emotion. Not so overcome with the joy of having been right, but so overcome by the presence of his brothers that he just starts weeping. And the text tells us that the Egyptians can hear him in the next room. He's weeping so hard. 
He sends them home with some food. They end up coming back. It's a few chapters later. It doesn't really tell us how much time has passed, but all 11 brothers come back this time. They see Joseph, and what do they do? They bow. All 11, right there in front of him. And again, Joseph doesn't rise up and say, told you, this is it. This is the thing that God said was going to happen. That's what 17-year-old Joseph would have done. But he's been in progress, and he starts to weep again. Something internal has happened there. God has done something inside of Joseph. And as a final test, a series of events play themselves out over the course of uh, like a chapter and a half or so. And Joseph ends up saying that Benjamin has got to stay and be a slave, the youngest brother. It's in Genesis 44. Benjamin's going to have to stay. He's going to be a slave. You all can go home. Here's your food. And one brother rises up to say, I will not give Benjamin over to be a slave. Who do you think it was? Judah. The same brother that had sold Joseph into slavery years before. Something internal has happened. And now rather than selling a brother into slavery and leaving him there, Judah's willing to become the substitute. He sold one brother into slavery. He's willing to substitute himself into slavery. Now something internal has happened. They weren't final products. Joseph was thrown in the pit and the Lord was with him and all of the growth that takes place happens because the Lord was with him. When we see ourselves and we see the glory and the grace of God, something has to win out. Either my sin and my brokenness, which is the thing that was going to kill me, or the grace and the goodness of God, which is the only thing that could restore me back to joy and back to life. There's also something eternal happening, though. In Genesis 45, verse 5, Joseph tells his brothers this. He's revealed his identity to them, and he says, Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to establish uh, you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Genesis 50, verse 20, it's probably the most famous statement of Joseph's entire life. This is the end of it. We get kind of the last picture here, and it's the thing that rings true within our minds that Joseph, just before his death, he says to one of his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. No pit, no prison. There's would mean no internal transformation here. It would mean no food for Jacob's family during the famine. It would also mean no slavery for, e- for Israel in Egypt. And ultimately, it would mean no exodus, which is the great Old Testament depiction of salvation. Something eternal was happening. One of the great hopes we have when we find ourselves in the pit is that God is doing something inside us. And that is wonderful, but he's also doing something that extends beyond us, which means we can lift our eyes from the challenge and the misery of our experience and see what God is doing beyond us. We know these things to be true because we see them here in Scripture, but we also know them to be true because we've seen these things in Christ. Judah offers to make himself a substitute, but where does our great substitute come from? Judah. Christ had the chance to lord over us his greatness, but instead he set it aside in order to save us. He rides into Jerusalem and has the chance to revel in his greatness as the streets are lined with people who are waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, but instead he sits outside Jerusalem and what does he do? He weeps. 
when we're tempted to feel as though we've been forgotten and abandoned by God, we need only to look to the cross and hear Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In order to be reminded that because he was forsaken, we might never have to be. We need only to look to the cross to see the physical presence of a God who is with us. We need only to look to the cross and get a visual reminder that God has remembered us. We need only to look to the cross and see there the proof that no pit is deeper than the one that God himself has already descended into on our behalf. I don't know what the future holds for you individually or for this congregation collectively. I don't know what it holds for me personally, but I do know the following things to be true. The Lord will be present. He will be present in the pit. He will be present in prison. He will be present on the highest mountain peak that our lives ever experience. I also know that His grace will continually give us the chance to see Him clearly and to cherish Him deeply and that the joy of our life in Christ will depend on us doing so. I know that He'll always be working something in us internally, that we're a work in progress, that we're not final products, and that means at times that things need to die, and the most gracious thing that God can do is give us the opportunity to put them to death. And it might be painful, and it might hurt, and the depth of brokenness that we see within ourselves might make us ashamed of who we are on the inside, but I also know that no amount of brokenness is too great for the blood of Jesus Christ to cover it when we stand before Him on the final day. He's working something in us internally, but he's also working something beyond us that he wants to accomplish in his eternal will. I don't know what that is for our church. I don't know what that is for me personally. I don't know what that is for you, but I do know with absolute certainty that he is working that thing in you and through you. And that means that even in your moments of greatest despair, you can lift up your eyes to the hope of the Lord who's not only doing something for your good by his grace, but he's also doing something for his will by His grace. The most gracious thing that the Lord can do for us is provide us with an opportunity to see Him clearly and to cherish Him deeply. I'm not like all the way out of the pit. I wish I could stand here and say like, I'm looking backwards and it all gets better. It's a process and it's difficult. And one final encouragement that I want to give before we spend some time worshiping is this. There are times where you might find yourself in a place where the darkness is so great and so pressing that no amount of internal reminders to yourself can help you reinsert the truth of the gospel into your own heart. And in those moments, unfortunately, something that the, evangel- the conservative evangelical church is not good at talking about is that you should see a counselor. You might need to take medication. And those things are totally fine to help you lift the fog of whatever is going on inside of you, to lighten the darkness in the pit just enough so that you can think clearly and see the glory of the Lord shining all around you. Those things are totally fine. We exist with this stigma about seeking help or possibly taking medication for our mental health. And let me tell you that my process to even get to this point would not be possible were it not for those two things. And so if you take nothing else away, take away from today the fact that when you find yourself in the pit and it's hard to get the gospel truth to penetrate into the darkness of your own heart, you might need someone who's willing to sit across from you lovingly and say, you need medicine, which will help. And then you've also got to square up with yourself and they can ask you questions. And I'll never forget the day I sat across from my counselor and he looked at me and he said, Tim, is it possible that you think far too highly of what other people think of you? And it was like getting 
kicked in the groin. It really was. But it was so loving. And I had to hear it. When you find yourself in the pit, you might need someone who can say that to you from the outside. And you might need to take some medication to help lift the fog a little bit. The Lord is with you. He's doing something internal and he's doing something eternal. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. Quick stand.